Good evening, good evening. Thank you all so much. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for coming to Beethoven's celebration. I don't know if this was an accident or not, but this season I have the three Bs. We have Beethoven tonight and Bach next month and Brahms in May. So obviously with all of these composers, it's impossible to give you a full overview. And all I'm gonna to try to do is try to delve into what really made these great composers tick. And then uh, with each of these um, three Bs, notes on music, there'll be a, a performance of a full work. So later on this evening, uh, David Felberg and I will play a complete Beethoven piano and violin sonata. So I know it's frustrating to hear me play little five second bits of this and that, but uh, if you're patient with that, at the end you'll get, you'll get a full piece. So Beethoven did more than write music. He really changed music. I think that there aren't a whole lot of composers you could say that about, but with Beethoven, the confluence of when he lived and who he was and the way that the world was already changing at that time allowed for this to be possible. You might say that there are some people who have great talent or great genius, but they're put down at the wrong time in history so that it can't flourish quite as much as it did. But in the case of Beethoven, this extraordinary young prodigy who was giving public concerts at seven and publishing his first piece when he was 11, had a personality that gravitated toward what could the individual achieve. And Beethoven grew up in a household where he really had to be a strong individual. His father was a raging alcoholic and uh, very abusive of all the children and of Beethoven's mother. So Beethoven quickly developed a very strong character. He would be awakened at five, five years old, uh, in the middle of the night by his father saying, you have to practice and you have to do it now because his teacher, we understand, was an insomniac. So he would come over to give Beethoven piano lessons in the middle of the night. And uh, if Beethoven didn't you know, reach the high standards his father expected when he was five years old, he would be physically punished. And so little Beethoven was a mess. His, his whole family was a mess. But um, somehow he had this overriding belief, which carried with him through his 56-year life, that he had something that needed to be said, it needed to be told. Now, Beethoven was one of the most famously irascible, unpleasant people in many ways. He didn't get along with his neighbors. He couldn't ever sustain a relationship. He uh, found ways to disagree with every one of his friends so that a friendship with Beethoven was, was always a sort of, you, you wouldn't even say it was a mixed blessing. It was just a problem. But um, nevertheless, uh, what shone through again and again is that Beethoven really had a, a very kind heart and, and a disposition that was uh, what I suppose we would call now was bipolar, that, that Beethoven went through bouts of terrible depression and then he would have manic fits when he could compose and compose and uh, take these long walks through Bonn and then later through Vienna where all the musical ideas would come to him and then he would sit down and write down as many of them as he could. Beethoven was born in 1770, 
Bonn, where he was born, was just a town. It was the seat of the elector of Cologne, Cologne Köln, the much larger city to the north. But Bonn, even for a small town, had an active musical life. It had an opera house with anywhere from 11 to 16 different operas performed there every year. And little Beethoven heard these operas. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Because, you know, we don't think of a town, we don't think of um, Las Cruces as being a town that would have, uh, you know, not, not to pick on Las Cruces, but I'm just saying, uh, <laughs> you know, a small town doesn't have that kind of musical life. But in the late uh, 1700s in Germany, this was just um, the way it was done. That was the way uh, a little town established its cultural life. And so the music uh, that he heard, of course, was by many composers whose names are forgotten today, but he also heard uh, music by Mozart and so forth, and he was profoundly affected by this. I know you've all heard of music divided up into Baroque and classical and romantic, but just to clarify a possible misconception, classical music can mean two things. It can mean the music of the last thousand or so years, uh, or, or it could refer to a very specific period, which was less than a hundred years long, uh, of music that followed the Baroque. Say Bach died in 1750 and Handel followed not long thereafter. Uh, in 1732, Haydn was born. Haydn, as a mature teenager, say 18, pretty much invented the symphony and uh, the string quartet and what we think of as chamber music and, you know, in his spare time. He, um, he created all these forms, but for, for better or for worse, Haydn was eclipsed to our modern ears by two composers, Mozart and Beethoven, whose music is performed much more than the music of Joseph Haydn. Now, Mozart and Beethoven both revered Haydn and thought that he created all the forms that they excelled in. But as you know, if you go to a symphony concert, in nine times out of 10, you're more likely to hear Mozart or Beethoven than Haydn. But Mozart and Beethoven can't really be lumped together either. Mozart, uh, who was born in 1756, took a style that Haydn established, forms, and made them seemingly effortlessly forms that could carry great joy or great profundity or great sorrow, but he never tried to break the stylistic mold that Haydn established. Beethoven, who actually studied with Haydn in his young 20s, absolutely broke that mold, and it was really partly the 14-year difference in age between Mozart and Beethoven, and the other part of it was Beethoven's own stormy personality and the background uh, which turned him into the person that he was. So Beethoven, coming in 1770, was already riding the wave of the Industrial Revolution. The atmosphere that, that Haydn and Mozart grew up in was one of refinement. It was one of the Age of Enlightenment. It was one where everything that you saw was uh, a handcrafted thing of beauty. Now, Beethoven is growing up in an age where suddenly, uh, starting in Britain but moving over to the European continent, the great possibilities of metal and huge structures and a life that can move faster and be industrialized begin to influence the way that everybody thinks. Well, for example, the piano. Uh, Mozart and Haydn could only play 
harpsichords when they were growing up, and the pianos that they played, uh, especially in their formative years, were very tinny compared to what we think of. Now, I'm sure Beethoven's first pianos would sound tinny to us too, but to Beethoven and his contemporaries, a whole new world was being opened up thanks to technology that allowed a piano to have a sonority that extended far beyond uh, the old pianos that were essentially harpsichords with strings and hammers. The first time that Beethoven heard Mozart play, he said, oh, he's a great pianist, but his playing is very choppy. Now, why would Mozart's playing have been choppy? Well, he had learned to become a great virtuoso on an instrument that had no sustaining power. So uh, creating long phrasing wasn't something that was a possibility for Bach as a great harpsichordist or Mozart playing very early pianos. Therefore, the nature of the instrument actually affected the music that was created for it. Beethoven, as I said, even as a young man, was a very fine pianist. His father always lied about his age, said he was a few years younger than he was, and tried to say that he had this uh, six-year-old prodigy when he had an eight-year-old prodigy. But in any case, Beethoven was an extraordinary pianist, not just playing the music of others, but also improvising. It was a favorite trick of Beethoven's to take a, a second violin part and just play it uh, on the piano and then improvise around it uh, marvelous slow and fast things that had the exact same second violin part. That was just one of his party tricks. So Beethoven immediately wanted to compose and wanted to imitate Mozart. That was the, the highest model available to him. He went to Vienna hoping to study with Mozart. He arrived in Vienna, that was an eight-day carriage journey away from Bonn arrived there when he was 16, and shortly after his arrival, got letters from his father that his mother was dying. Um, he may or may not have even made contact with Mozart, nobody knows. But in any case, within a few weeks, he was headed back to Bonn. And he stayed there for several years, taking care of his younger brothers because his father's alcoholism had worsened. And so Beethoven took a four-year hiatus from composition, or study to take care of his family. He tried to have an injunction against his father so that his father couldn't come to the house and that Beethoven would collect uh, the income that his father should have been collecting to take care of the brothers. By the way, there were seven Beethoven children, but only three survived infancy, which was fairly ordinary at that time. So Beethoven and his two younger brothers, uh, Karl and Johann, had this difficult relationship. And finally, Joseph Haydn was passing through Bonn on his way to London in 1790. And somehow, one of Beethoven's friends arranged for him to meet with Haydn. Well, this changed everything. And when Haydn came back from London in 1792, he invited Beethoven to go to Vienna to study with him, and Beethoven accepted this. So now, Beethoven, at 21 years old, is in Vienna, the musical capital of Europe, and beginning to make a name for himself as a pianist. But he wants to make a name for himself as a composer. So immediately, he tries to use not only the musical language that he's learned from Haydn and from Mozart, 
but the emotional language, one, that he feels himself, two, that is becoming current in Europe, three, that is following the romantic tradition in writing, because literature usually precedes music in the trends that come across to the world, and four, he suddenly has pianos that can handle the, the greater strength of sound that he wants to use in his musical expression. Just to give you an example of this aesthetic difference, Mozart said in a letter to his father writing about uh, the abduction from the seraglio when he was composing it, even in a horrific situation, it is important that the music should never lose control and be anything but pleasing to the listener. All right, Beethoven, born only 14 years later, feels that in order to express, music has to jump out and alarm the listener so that the emotional content of it can be contained. Now, this is a different way. This is not to say Beethoven's emotions were deeper than Haydn's or Mozart's. It's to say that it was unacceptable aesthetically to Haydn or to Mozart to have music be what Mozart called offensive to the ear. And Mozart goes on to say in the letter to his father, music that offensive to the ear and therefore not real music. So for Beethoven, suddenly this becomes a possibility of real music. You know, the Haydn Surprise Symphony. This was considered a huge joke. Haydn did that once in his career because he knew it was ugly by his aesthetic sense. Beethoven did it 10 times in every movement he ever wrote, <laughs> and it had become the acceptable norm. So we have in Beethoven a vast range of dynamic change that becomes part of his musical style, part of his expression. Beethoven wrote quite a few pieces as a young, so was 11 to 18 years old, and didn't want them to be counted among his opus numbers. Uh, when I say that, you know, different composers have different systems by which their compositions were cataloged, and Beethoven's compositions are cataloged by opus numbers. He wanted his opus one to be pieces with which he would announce himself to Vienna. And Haydn, who was his teacher at the time, was very strong in advocating for Beethoven. So he said, look, I'm a famous composer. Why don't you say these compositions were written by Ludwig van Beethoven, student of Joseph Haydn? And Beethoven was terribly offended. He said, why would I put another composer's name on my pieces? So Haydn was used to this. He, he just accepted that Beethoven... Now remember, the difference in age between these two is 38 years. Haydn born in 1732, Beethoven born in 1770. Very different worlds that they inhabited. But Haydn, with good humor, which seems to be how he handled everything, just said, oh, the great Mufti would like to have his own uh, compositions. And uh, so this Opus 1 was a set of three piano trios, works for piano, violin, and cello, a form, by the way, invented by Joseph Haydn. And uh, Beethoven wrote three of these, dedicated them to Haydn, and uh, Haydn also suggested that one of them was perhaps too adventurous for the Viennese public and that Beethoven shouldn't publish it. Well, Beethoven was furious about that as well. So uh, the set was published as Beethoven wanted it to be. And his opus two was a set of piano sonatas, 
three sonatas for solo piano. Beethoven was a superb pianist. He was also quite a good violinist. His father, when he wasn't drunk, was a tenor in the church choir and a violinist and gave Beethoven sort of beginning violin lessons. Beethoven pursued throughout his life the piano and the violin. Now, these three piano sonatas in Opus 2 already show us why Beethoven was conceiving of music differently. This is going to sound paradoxical, but in order to create works of larger size, length, greater scope, it's almost essential to have compositional materials that are shorter because a short motif, a rhythmic motif, can be reused in a hundred different ways. A long melody, a four-bar melody, commits you to stating that melody. So Beethoven figured out almost right away in Opus 2, number one, how to take melodic germs that could be reused through entire compositions. Uh, Mozart's G minor symphony has four movements, and the fourth movement, which Beethoven loved, starts his first piano sonata that he published starts. Well, at least it's in a different key, right? So <laughs> About three things are happening here. First, we hear Mozart's melody, uh, whole tone down. Now, he takes away the first note so that it becomes a little shorter. And then, even shorter. And already, the tempo is tapering off. Why is that important? Because, in a sense, Beethoven, the formal composer, and Beethoven, the improviser, are meeting. They're meeting already in the early bars of his first piano sonata. You can look at Beethoven's output, and hundreds of examples abound of how, in the most structural, architectural composition, suddenly improvisation takes over. I'm sure that many of you are familiar with the, um, the oboe cadenza in the opening movement of the Fifth Symphony. The first time it happens, Let's see. That's just first violins. The second time it happens. And one oboist hangs on plays. And Critics have written thousands of pages about why this oboe solo should suddenly emerge in the middle of such a tightly constructed piece of music. And the answer is that Beethoven did not, in his mind, separate improvisation from strict composition as a means of expression. Beethoven was primarily focused on expression. That he had developed a very efficient and classically correct way of writing architecturally great music is true, but the final goal for him was not the architecture, it was what he wanted to express in a language that was new to European music. So these piano sonatas are not all um, 
mining the same emotional well. It's interesting because uh, when we think of the Fifth Symphony and the things that happened in the middle of Beethoven's life, it's easy to think of Beethoven writing defiant and heroic music. But in fact, Beethoven's output is full of tender music, of music that idolizes the beauty of nature. Uh, really, he covers as great an emotional gamut as, as any composer. And he does so right away in these early piano sonatas. Um, at the same time, he consistently uses the compositional technique of tiny bursts of uh, melodic germs. The second piano sonata begins. Now let's just think about what's happening here. First of all, it's clear this is not something that Haydn would have written or that Mozart would have written because their works began either with a stately introduction or with an immediate statement of some beautiful melody that would then be varied but according to the classical sonata form. Okay, this is just a two-note motif, and this is an answer. Now, another key. Now Beethoven takes the first motif and extends it, and that's the last we hear of it for a little while. But it's going to come back, of course, and because it's so short, it can take us to any remote key. I guess we have to talk about keys for a moment. In the time of Bach, the idea of having an instrument, a keyboard instrument, tuned so that all the possible 12 major keys and 12 minor keys could be played and be in tune was still a new idea. The key of C major was the most in tune, and the further afield you went adding sharps or flats, the more out of tune the keys became. Now, composers didn't see that as a disadvantage. They simply associated the idiosyncratic out-of-tunenesses of different keys with different emotions. But when Bach wrote the well-tempered clavier, it didn't mean that the keyboard instrument was in a good mood. It meant that <laughs> it was tuned so that all keys were equally playable. And that moment in history was the foundation for what allowed classical, with a capital C, that 75-year period of music, to be possible. Because once keys can be used so that we can shift from, say, C major to E major to you know, remote A-flat major, then the kind of trickery that Beethoven uses in, in his writing uh, becomes possible. Before that, it's impossible. So in Beethoven, keys certainly have emotional meanings to him. Uh, C major is an intellectually strong key. A major is a joyful key. Beethoven's favorite key of all, C minor, does almost always come with works of defiance and power. Uh, B flat major is, is very soft, uh, a loving and a key that associates with the beauty of nature. But for Beethoven, he could slide from one of these keys into another without having uh, instruments unable to tune with each other the way it would have been only 50 years before. Okay, so the third of these three sonatas in Opus 2 is the most extensive. 
And again, we'll see Beethoven using small germs and creating something bigger. He's... That's the whole basis for the first movement. All that is, is the same germ in the dominant key. Now, he'll take the rhythmic bum, bada bada bum, and... and use it more repeatedly so that what started out as can now be expanded. So now the left hand takes over what the right hand had done before. Beethoven still used the classical sonata form in which, in a movement, there are two themes of opposing emotions. In this sonata, for example, this theme seems quite cheerful, and its mate has a more sad, somehow longing feeling. So it's a typical classical idea in the first movement to have two melodies which both through their harmonic expression and through the way um, the, the high points are reached has a different emotional feeling. And then ultimately the two are resolved. That's an ideal of the Age of Enlightenment. But Beethoven, as he matures, is less interested in resolving that conflict uh, than he is in showing how great the conflict is. And uh, in the, the later works, Beethoven piano sonatas, for example, uh, he throws away feeling that he needs to have um, the, the rules of the classical form when he would rather just have an outburst. Um, Poor Haydn and Mozart would be just <laughs> horrified by this, because uh, what, what, what is the compositional value of, of F minor, F minor, F minor, or C major, C major, C major? It has no compositional inherent characteristic that's carrying the piece forward, but it has an emotional power, and this is, of course, what Beethoven was after above all things. So in so many of these pieces, as we watch him develop, the idea of extreme dynamics plays out. Another factor was that when Beethoven started writing, the piano went from that note to that note. So if he has a tune uh, and then a, another time he has to have the same tune in a higher key, he'll have to rewrite it if it goes above F natural because the piano didn't have any notes above F natural. And uh, even in the sonata we're gonna play you tonight, you'll hear um, certain things that suddenly we get up to F and we keep hammering on that F because there's nothing up there. There's no, there's no notes above the F. But by the time of the third piano concerto, you can feel Beethoven just rejoicing that the piano has added another fifth on top because uh, he goes... <laughs> like saying, see, see, I can do that now. 
<laughs> I get, and, and every time the piano expanded, immediately Beethoven's piano compositions reflected the greater range of the piano. So it was a dynamic range, a range simply of pitch, and of all the possibilities. Now, another thing that happened was the sustaining pedal began to uh, actually do something, and the um, pedal on the left, which slides the, if you were looking inside a piano, you would see that the hammers that hit the strings move over a little bit to the right when you depress the pedal on the, on the left. And what that does is it means the hammer hits fewer strings and makes a different sound. In Beethoven's day, when you push that pedal down, what, what people now call the soft pedal, but it's really not a soft pedal, it, it, it made a creepy effect um, in a good way so that only one string was being touched by the hammers, and it was called una corda, one string. So if you push down that left pedal, uh, you get the effect of uh, just like a harp, uh, one string being touched by the pedal, and uh, a famous Beethoven piano moment when he asks for una corda is... Now we can't really imagine what this sounded like on his piano. the whole movement to be played this una corda. This sonata does not have any sonata form in sight. So Beethoven calls it sonata quasi una fantasia, a, almost a fantasy. Uh, this means that he admits to the public that he is not trying to write a classical sonata. He is essentially improvising. Uh, and these fantasias were um, a very popular and beloved form of, a, uh, of piano composition at the time, uh, and Beethoven was a master of them. Now, this particular one is dedicated to Giulietta Guicciardi, whom we assume was one of the many women Beethoven was in love with, but uh, Beethoven was, was uh, hopelessly unsuccessful in love. Um, and and uh, when he was able to connect with a woman, usually he would propose marriage and the family would say, he's a musician and has no money and no possibilities. And you know, the royalties on the Ninth Symphony had not started to come in. So uh, Beethoven, Beethoven never, uh, not only never married, he, he never had a, a steady relationship with a woman. Um, throughout his life, there are women, usually they were piano students, younger piano students. Um, and it's clear that he has a, a love for them or something, but um, it never, never goes anywhere. Um, there are letters from other women to Beethoven that basically say, um, I can offer you my friendship, I hold you in high esteem, and uh, there are accounts that these women you know, say to their niece or whomever reports, 
um, you know, he's crazy and he's ugly and why would I even consider this for one second? So Beethoven was not fortunate in that way, but it was also clear to him that marriage or a really deep involvement with a woman would not allow him to do what he wanted to do. So there's a very curious letter that he leaves behind that he never sent to anybody called To the Immortal Beloved. And he doesn't address it to a person by name. It's just to the Unsterbliche Geliebte. And uh, he writes how he cannot give himself fully, even though he's expressing a love which is, uh, in his mind, greater than what any normal mortal can offer. Um, so Beethoven has both a very grand sense of himself and an awareness that he's accomplishing through his artistic work something extraordinary and an awareness that he is probably not going to have a happy life the way many of us manage to do. So <laughs> Beethoven wrote a cycle of songs called An die Ferne Geliebte, to the distant beloved. The beloved for Beethoven is always distant. You know, it's an idea. It's not something that he, he realized. Beethoven was successful in Vienna. These first piano works brought him fame. They brought him commissions. Um, he was able to connect with members of the European aristocracy, um, Count Lichnowsky, um, Lobkowitz, most notably Archduke Rudolf, who funded half of Beethoven's career. So Beethoven really was the first freelance composer, um, where Haydn just worked for Count Esterhazy, or Mozart worked for the court. Beethoven would write pieces on spec and then find uh, these princes or counts or whatever who were willing to subsidize him and they would get their name on the dedication. And um, the piece we're going to play you later, this Beethoven Violin Sonata, is dedicated to Alexander I of Russia. And Alexander I embodied everything that Beethoven believed in. He, he uh, realized that the reigning czar was a tyrant, a despot, so he had him assassinated. Happened to be his father, but that didn't stand in his way. Uh, <laughs> So Alexander I to Beethoven was a great hero, and um, Beethoven wrote these three violin sonatas for him, and Alexander I gave him a diamond, and Beethoven um, said, you know, I, I would compose more if you were interested, and I guess Alexander I thought that was enough. He'd given away enough diamonds and uh, received enough violin sonatas. But Beethoven was always successful in connecting with these patrons, and the patrons were content that to have a work dedicated to them by Ludwig von Beethoven was worth everything that they put into it. Now, some of them went further. Archduke Rudolf actually took piano lessons with Beethoven and composed himself, and Beethoven was always very encouraging of Archduke Rudolf's efforts. Um, I think, though, that many of us know the stories of Beethoven. You know, if you're in Vienna, you see about 25 houses where it says Beethoven lived here for three months. And he was always aggravating his landlords and landladies and um, making noise in the middle of the night, you know, playing the piano. And as his hearing started to go, he had to play the piano louder and louder to hear what was happening. He um, apparently lost the hearing in the higher registers first. So if he was testing something out, you know, he, he would just be playing down. And 
and apparently he said to his friends, isn't that beautiful? <laughs> because uh, by the late 1790s, he could tell that, that his hearing was going. Now, obviously, for a professional musician, this is a tragedy. You know, it's, it's not like Goya, who was deaf but was painting. If Goya had gone blind, that would be equivalent to Beethoven going deaf. So Beethoven somehow managed to maintain the will to continue to write in spite of this hearing loss and constant ringing in his ears. And that's why I said early on that Beethoven's will figures into his life and his life's work in a way uh, beyond what it would do in the case of many composers. Beethoven wanted to make a mark not just as a composer, but because of what he felt he had to say about human emotion and the human condition. And he wrote to his brothers. Now, for some bizarre reason, he never sent them this letter. He kept this letter, and it was found after his death, along with the letter to the immortal beloved. But just after 1800, he writes a letter to his brothers, and he says, try to understand that in spite of my behavior, which is terrible, and I freely admit that it's terrible, I am a musician who can no longer hear a flute when my friend says, do you hear a flute? I can no longer hear ordinary sounds, and yet I feel that I have more that I need to say. And so I'm going to uh, let you all know that um, I will probably only become more ill-tempered as life goes on, and I'm going to stay as long as I possibly can because I have these things that, that I want to say. Now, even this declaration of art as something that one has to say is fairly new. I would say it belongs to the 19th century and that Beethoven ushered it in. Uh, Mozart certainly said everything he could say, and so did Bach, and so did Handel, but none of them ever made statements about how they wanted to remain on earth because they had a commitment to their art and they had a declaration still incomplete, which had to be completed before they could leave earth. But Beethoven did, and he sort of created a model, he created an image, an archetype of what an artist would be in the 19th century, and, and others followed him. And of course, you know, Schubert and Wagner and so many of the famous composers that came after him held him in great reverence. So this letter was discovered after his death, and in it he asks his brothers for understanding. But the fact that he never sent it indicates to me that Beethoven knew he would achieve a level of fame so that his papers would be discovered and read not just by his brothers, who might not have kept it, but be read by the world, which is exactly what happened. After 1800, say around 1802, people start to classify Beethoven's works as no longer early Beethoven, where he is developing a style, moving away from Haydn and Mozart, but fundamentally keeping those rules, to a period called Middle Beethoven, which, say, lasts from 1802 for a dozen years, where he is really changing the kind of music that anybody has written up to this point. It's not that it becomes more complex. If anything, it becomes more direct and more simple, more straightforward, and yet, it has compositional elements that are very uh, multifaceted. To take the Fifth Symphony, which all of you know. Uh, this theme 
is repeated as a rhythmic germ in all four movements of the symphony, not just in the first movement. So uh, already a technique that was developed further by, say, Liszt and Wagner uh, of making elements that unite an entire work are present in Beethoven symphonies from the first decade of the 1800s. Um, because later in the scherzo, we have evidence that Beethoven wants to make an entire work organic. Now these pieces are 40 minutes long. A symphony by Haydn might be 20 minutes long, by Mozart maybe 25 minutes long. When Beethoven wrote the Eroica Symphony in the very early 1800s, it was nearly an hour long. Now music isn't better because it's longer or shorter, of course. What's interesting about the Eroica Symphony is that he developed compositional means to logically expand a work of music so that uh, instead of just repeating itself, everything was somehow a development of the material that had come before. And once again, keeping the material simple meant that it was easier to find these little kernels of musical information to develop. I told you that the piano sonata um, Opus 2, number 1, used that theme from Mozart's G minor symphony. The scherzo of the sigma of the fifth symphony starts. And you remember Mozart's symphony? Now we just go down. There were no rules about intellectual property. Nobody <laughs> cared. And obviously the fifth symphony is very different from the G minor symphony. But these sort of quintessential uh, musical moments in Beethoven's life came back to him, and he repeated them uh, at moments of emotional uh, high tension. Uh, there's an opera by Mozart called Bastien and Bastien that's got a little piece. And uh, you think the Eroica Symphony but that's where it stops being the same. Because Beethoven goes there, and then you know you're not in Mozart anymore, right? So all of the ideas that were conceived by Haydn and Mozart formed the foundation of Beethoven's musical language, but then he took the harmonic differences, the dynamic extremes, and the pitch extremes afforded by the instruments, and the fact that orchestras were getting bigger and able to do more and more things and uh, created a whole new musical world out of that. The orchestra from Mozart, say, had occasional optional clarinets. By the time we come to Beethoven, double flutes, double oboes, double clarinets, double bassoons are taken for granted, double horns, double trumpets, maybe three trombones, maybe a contrabassoon. So the, the range extends and with it the emotional capacity to express. Um, Beethoven was not inherently a man of the theater. Mozart had written 20 operas, and you know when, when Beethoven was in Vienna, uh, opera was everywhere. So he decided it was important for him to write an opera. It's hardly surprising, given his emphasis on personal freedom and the power of the individual, that he would choose a story that had those themes at its center. 
he chose a French play. It became his opera, Fidelio. The central character of Fidelio is a woman named Leonora. Her husband is a political prisoner. He's been in the deepest, darkest cell of a tyrant for years. Leonora decides she will disguise herself as a man, and because it's opera, nobody picks up on this. So <laughs> disguised as a man named Fidelio, she goes into the very place where the prisoner is being held, and uh, sure enough, she is able to liberate him, and the tyrant is brought down. And that is Beethoven's view of what should be happening in life, right, in a nutshell. Now, Beethoven's deafness continues. By the time it's 1815, he can't hear anything. He's still able to give some kinds of performances because he can see, and uh, you know, he, he's a master of the piano, but nobody really wants him to uh, conduct anymore because he can't hear what's going on. So his musical life and his inner musical voices change, and we reach this period that music scholars call late Beethoven. Late Beethoven is essentially a music that is so uh, marvelous but strange that nobody has tried to, <laughs> to analyze it. Uh, of course people have tried to analyze it, but it defies analysis. Um, if you imagine a composer at the level of skill where they don't need to hear something to write it down, at the same time, if they're cut off from all sounds of the exterior world, they're going to have very different feelings and the kind of pieces that Beethoven wrote at this time uh, become more mystical. There are um, five string quartets written in this late period. The Ninth Symphony is written in this late period. Now, you might say the Ninth Symphony is not very mystical, certainly not the fourth movement, and Beethoven very deliberately set out to write something that was an announcement to the world of what he felt um, was important uh, to humanity. And so this poem of Schiller, the Ode to Joy, Andi Freude, um, that all humanity is a family and that we're all sheltered under the all-knowing, all-protective wing of divinity and that together we can all rise up. Now, Obviously, if somebody had said this politically in 1824, that would have been cause for imprisonment. But to write it in a symphony was a safe way for Beethoven to express these feelings. I think it was Shelley who, who wrote that, that artists are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. Um, I wish that were true, but it's a fabulous <laughs> thought. And, and Beethoven certainly felt that he could say things about the direction in which the world could move that, that people who were expressing themselves in political forms could not. Imagine that at the time the, the Congress of Vienna, Metternich, and all of these uh, brilliant but scheming European politicians trying to figure out how to take a, a larger piece of the European pie for themselves. And Beethoven is saying, no, we are all one family. You know, so uh, That, I believe, is why the Ninth Symphony stands out among all the other late works with such um, melodic directness, because he wants that to be heard clearly by everybody. And it is safe to say among pieces of classical music that that piece has reached uh, more ears than any other. <laughs> um, 
the Japanese perform it regularly on, on New Year's Eve, and they call it the, the Daiku, the Great Nine, you know? And so it's not just a European property, it's, it's an international property uh, for everybody who wants to, to listen to it. So I want to just go back to um, Beethoven the pianist and say every composer has their instinctive musical gifts they have whatever they happen to have as a human being, and then they have whatever their instrumental virtuosity has taught them. And these three things come into play in unequal amounts, depending, you know, Franz Liszt obviously was one of the greatest pianists who ever lived. Chopin was one of the greatest pianists who ever lived. So their work is piano dominant. It, it's, it's expressive but it's really about what can the piano do? And those two composers do very different things with the piano. Beethoven, although he was a great pianist, really became orchestra dominant. And through his nine symphonies, we see an evolution of what the orchestra can do that was clearly really important to him. Uh, when you think that the first symphony, which was first heard in 1800, starts with a dominant seventh chord, uh, that was a way to bring in the 19th century to say, all right, everybody, the, the uh, 1700s are over, and now, now we're going to have a symphony that begins like this. And then another dominant. So you don't even know what key you're in. You say, oh, we're in G. No, you're not. <laughs> And Beethoven loves to play this game where he'll have a melody that is almost as though he's trying to think of a tune. He doesn't bring us to the main event uh, until he feels good and like it, and he delays it uh, on purpose. The finale of that same first symphony starts with the violins playing. Like he's trying to figure out what, what might make a nice melody. And then finally, oh yeah. So uh, Beethoven often does this, and again, guess what it is? It's his Beethoven the improviser and Beethoven the classical composer coming together at the same time in the same work. Uh, and this is one of the things that gives his compositions that special Beethoven stamp. I always lose sense of time when I'm doing this. Um, could somebody tell me where we are right now? <laughs> All right, so, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a 15 or 20 minute break and come back, and then you'll hear a fantastic violin and piano sonata, and then we can talk more about Beethoven if you want to. All right? So let's take a break. Thank you. And uh, one person just reminded me something which I neglected to tell you, which is it is a well-documented fact that Beethoven could not multiply. Uh, and, and scholars, when they edited his works, had to change the 64th notes into 128th notes or 32nd notes because he really couldn't quite figure out exactly, you know, in some of those complicated things. But uh, I think, you know, there, there are many extraordinarily intelligent and amazing people who have 
no time in their life for numbers, and Beethoven was one of them. And so if you're one of them, you can feel comforted. You're, you're in great company. And, and another person brought up something about Franz Liszt. I want to tell you that Liszt, when he was 11 years old, so 1822, Beethoven, deaf as a stone, went to uh, somebody and said, please, please, please let me play for Beethoven. I play all of his pieces. And in this case, it's true, he did. Uh, and um, the, the introduction was finally made after Beethoven said, I'm sick of child prodigies. I have no interest in them. <laughs> and uh, apparently Liszt went and said, oh, I'd like to play a little piece by Ferdinand Ries. You know, this was uh, sort of a little, a little nothing. So he played that, and Beethoven said, oh, yeah, this is, this is quite good. And he said, do you play any Bach? And, and Liszt played the, the fugue from um, the well-tempered. And Beethoven said, well, let's see, transpose it into E minor, which Liszt, of course, did immediately. And so Beethoven said, well, uh, this is actually quite good. And at this point, Liszt, who was waiting for this all along, said, now can I play you something really good? And he goes, uh, This is the opening of Beethoven's own uh, first piano concerto. So Beethoven was completely won over at that point. <laughs> gave Liszt a big kiss on the forehead and said, uh, you're, you go on, you're one of the lucky ones. So uh, Liszt talked about that uh, for the rest of his life. He, he felt he'd been given a benediction by Beethoven. So we're going to give you a benediction by Beethoven now. Uh, I am so delighted to have tonight a magnificent violinist whom many of you know. Please, a warm welcome for David Felberg. This piece is in four movements, a fast movement, a slow movement, a little scherzo, and a finale. Uh, remember I told you it was dedicated to Tsar Alexander I. There's a lot of war and cannons and dramatic moments in this piece. Um, we really don't care where you applaud. If you like it, you just applaud and uh, we'll be happy. But, but make sure you applaud at the end as well.
I'm sure you heard in that sonata all the things we talked about. <laughs> if anybody wants to ask any questions about Beethoven before we all say goodnight, this is your opportunity to do that. Anybody have any burning thoughts they'd like to share before we go home? Great. Beethoven is wonderful. <laughs> and uh, another big hand for David Felberg. Please.